All right, 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. We uh, got up through verse 8 last time we were together in 1 Thessalonians, so we'll pick it up at verse, uh, with chapter 4, verse 8 we got through. We'll pick it up at verse 9 tonight. I just want to go back, if you were with us this past Sunday, uh, we talked about the parable of the wedding feast in Matthew chapter 22. Uh, amazed how many people were terrified by that parable, as I, as I told everybody on the front end. Uh, Jesus really, really laying into the religious leaders. He will continue that this Sunday uh, as well, but not quite as um, powerful in terms of being in your face as he's been the last few weeks. And uh, we said at the end of the, that section in Matthew's gospel that we saw a man who had a said faith, but not a real faith. His mouth said one thing about his faith, but his life said something else differently about his faith. And the scripture teaches that it's one thing to say that you are a follower of Jesus, but it is entirely another thing to prove it by the way you live out a transformed Christian life, transformed not by yourselves, although your desire does help, but transformed by the person and power of the Holy Spirit. Now, originally my intention tonight was to finish chapter 4, but as I prayed with the Good Friday break, it would break up the section that ends chapter 4 and goes into chapter 5 on eschatology or the end times. So all you end times buffs, you can come and uh, show up in two weeks, and then when it airs on the radio, you can answer all the hate mail for me, so I'll really be appreciative of that. And um, instead, we want to look tonight at just verses 9 through 12, in which the Apostle Paul, it seems very disconnected from the previous section, but I don't think it is that disconnected, as he's going to emphasize to us how much, and remember this is a letter written to a young church that he had founded, and presumably we don't know some of the questions or problems that were going on. Timothy came back with a report after the Apostle Paul got run out of town, and so he's, he's addressing issues on this, based upon this report that he got, and he's going to emphasize to us just how much in the local church love matters. Now, last time we came across a very interesting verse, uh, 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 3, for this is the will of God, your sanctification, that is our becoming more like Jesus Christ, that you should abstain from sexual immorality. And so we spent the whole night talking about uh, purity, sexual purity. And interesting, in the American culture, there is a big emphasis, and it's kind of interesting, some of the stuff that's already going on in the, in the presidential races, and gosh, it's such a long process, isn't it? I mean, one guy gets elected and they start running again. And, um, but in American culture, we talk a lot about being good. But if we want to think through biblically of what we might call biblical, practical theology, it's not so much about being good, it's about being godly. And they're not always exactly the same. Uh, it's important to remember in, the, in your sanctification, you're becoming more like Jesus in godliness, that a follower of Jesus Christ is not alone. I cannot, 
I cannot overemphasize that to you. And I don't mean just your friends sitting next to you. And you should have Christian friends who are helping you become more like Christ and, and you know, walking with you through some of the areas where you're you know, not doing well, you're sinning, you're struggling. But the Holy Spirit is committed to your sanctification. The Holy Spirit is committed to my sanctification. The Holy Spirit is committed to making us all more like Jesus Christ, those of us who have put our trust in him. If you're here and you haven't yet done that, we're glad that you're here, and I hope that maybe you'll do that uh, tonight. And as we, as we said, um, um, when we put our trust in Jesus Christ, and we've said this many times, and we will say it over and over and over again because it constantly bears repeating, when we put our trust in Jesus Christ, we are declared positionally righteous by God. It, it, Jesus on the cross was treated as if he had lived our life. We are then in turn, by putting our trust in him, we get his righteousness. And in God's eyes, it is as if we have lived his life. And it begins the process of ours going from just being positionally righteous in God's eyes to him making us more practically righteous in the way we live our lives. So, so what is the process like? What is the process like? Well, what happens is that the Holy Spirit goes after all of the unchristlike things in our lives. As the great biblical counselor David Paulison, if you know anything about him, pray for him, he's sick. But as he said, usually God starts with the stuff that puts you in jail. And so he gets that stuff kind of out of your life, and he helps you with that, and Lord willing, he, he does. And, and so, but the Holy Spirit goes after the unchristlike things, and also at the same time works hard at developing the Christ-like things that need to take place in our lives. Why? Why would he, why would he do that? I find the Old Testament... A book of Leviticus to be most helpful here. Leviticus 20, 26 says this. The Lord says, and you shall be holy to me for, now often that word for in the Bible can be substituted for our word because, for or because I the Lord am holy. So we are to be holy to God. Why? Because he is holy and there's more to that. There's more to it. He has separated you from the peoples. Why? Why are, why are we separated from other people that you should be mine, says the Lord. In other words, when you come to trust in Jesus Christ, the Holy Spirit comes to reside inside your heart. You begin, you again, you're righteous in God's sight. You start to, then God starts to work on your living that out. What God has done internally in salvation, in your heart. He also wants to do externally in sanctification in the way we live. So as we've seen, this is a young church in Thessalonica full of new believers. And the Apostle Paul in the section we're moving, we're coming from and going into wants to make sure that they understand this. And it's not unusual for him to write like this. You know, As we said, most of the most of the letters, of, we've said this before, most of the letters in the New Testament are about problems in, in the churches that he has started, how to live. There's deep theology. There's all kinds of stuff in there. And, and you wonder, well, why is there problems in a church? 
I figured this out. I have. After all the years of pastoring, as best I can tell, the reason this problem's in the church is because there's people in the church. That's, that's, that's why there's problems. We, we don't have too much of that stuff here, which I'm thankful. Sometimes people ask me why, why that we don't have too much of that stuff here like a lot of other churches do, and I say that's because I'm a bull in the pulpit, man. <laughs> I don't try to be a bully, but I'm not going to mince words. I'm just going to tell it like it is, and I'm going to trust God to soften the hearts of, of God's people. And so though many people are positionally righteous, including me, uh, we still are all practical sinners. Uh, to be honest, in my opinion, this is one of the extreme advantages of verse-by-verse verse teaching, is you uncover every single topic the Lord wants to talk about, not what the pastor wants to talk about, not what we want to hear about, but every single topic, no stone left unturned that the Lord wants to talk about because of this, and this is very important. The Bible deals more with the people of God than unbelieving people. You'd never think that when you hear a lot of sermons. I mean, for a pastor, it is so much easier to put down the unbelieving people in our culture for two reasons. Number one, uh, people love it. Because I love to sit in their church seat and go, oh, I'm so wonderful. I'm not like that. You know, I'm talking about these people and those people and the way they're this and the way they're that. And, um, and also, to talk to badmouth the culture requires absolutely no study on the part of the pastor. I mean, just none. Just watch TV for 10 minutes. You got it. Just, just watch the news. But I think it's unbiblical because when you see in the scripture, the apostles warn followers of Jesus when they talk about the culture, how the culture tries to pull us away from Jesus, and don't blame the people, examine our own hearts so it doesn't happen to us, because if it pulls us away from Jesus, it's something we need to be careful of. What is biblical is to teach the people of God, the word of God, what it says, undiluted, without apology, I, I think we should be passionate and loving and kind as best we can and teach people how to love one another, which will also equip us to speak to a lost and hurting world. So with all that said, let's jump in and look at verse 9 and 10. He says, but concerning brotherly love, you have no need that I should write to you, for you yourselves are taught by God to love one another. And indeed, you do so toward all the brethren who are in Macedonia. That's the area in which they lived. But we urge you, brethren, that you increase more and more. Now, if you were with us in chapter 3, some of this might sound a little familiar to you because there's an interesting concept that's going on here. In 1 Thessalonians chapter 3, verse 12, if you recall, the Apostle Paul was praying. In fact, we did one Sunday sermon just on that prayer after going through it together on a Wednesday night, and he said this in verse 12, And may the Lord make you increase and abound in love to one another and to all, so it's not just the people in the church, it's the people outside the church, just as we do to you. Now this is very, this is so interesting to me. What does he do? He prays for them in chapter 3, 
And now he's going to teach them what he prayed for in chapter 4. In other words, he hopes that he that his instruction will be one of the instruments that God uses to answer his prayer. That has profound implications for the way we are with people. I mean, we pray with, we pray about people to God and asking God to help them in certain areas, and then we get together with them and we discuss with them how God has instructed his people to live so we can, in fact, become instruments of the very thing that God laid on our hearts to pray for people. I can't tell you how many times people come up to me, particularly on a Sunday morning, and they go, did somebody tell you about my problem? Or people who come for the first time and they go, it was like you were reading my mail this week or something. What was, what was going on with that? Because we pray for people, and then often God will deliver the right message because he's prompted us to pray, and then we speak the word of God to people. So he's moving from controlling our bodies sexually to controlling our hearts and our minds with love. So now look at verse 9 again. He says, but concerning, some versions say, uh, now about. And so he's, that really lets you know that he's, he's moving into a new topic, but it is somewhat connected to the last topic. He says, brotherly love. Now concerning brotherly love, concerning Philadelphia love. So does that mean you have to like every team from Philadelphia? I certainly hope not, because I, then I have to repent. <laughs> Right? Because you know I'm from I'm a born and bred New Yorker, so the teams from Boston and the teams from Philadelphia, it's just like part of my DNA that I can't vote for them. And so 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 but we still have to have Philadelphia love. Now interesting, the term uh, of brotherly love, of Philadelphia love, originally had to do with blood relationship love. So if you were a brother and sister, you had the same mother and father, or one parent the same, or something like that, but you were related by blood. That was the original meaning of it, and they imported it into the church because uh, when we are followers of Jesus, we say this often, we are now adopted sons and daughters of the king, which is actually, in many ways, we've said this before, it's better than the forgiveness of sins. I mean, I'll forgive you, no problem, but I invite you to live at my house. But that's what God does. He forgives your sins, and he invites you into his kingdom to live at his house. And then what happens is we are adopted into the family of God by blood, but it's not mom and dad's blood. Whose blood is it? It's by the blood of Jesus Christ. And so these two things, purity, which is in the last section, love towards one another, were key distinctives of the first century church. We've said before, one of the things that was really unique about the first century church in the Roman Empire was this, and it, it still should be the case today. They were stingy with their bodies, but they were generous with their money. Isn't that the opposite of the way most people are? Most people are willing to share their bodies in our culture, but they're stingy with their money. These guys were the exact opposite. And so there's an interesting connection here. As we increase in love for God, 
and for others. I don't know how it works. Don't ask me. And as we study the word of God, it often increases our own personal holiness. Now, if you don't have a love and respect for others, it's difficult to maintain any type of purity because you're only going to care about yourself. And therefore, as we saw last time in the last section, it is difficult to please God. And that is to be a goal of ours. It's amazing to me how many Christians seem to forget that obeying the moral law of God is pleasing to our Heavenly Father. I mean, he wants us to be people of purity. He wants us to be people of love. Again, we're still in verse 9 concerning brotherly love. He says, you have no need that I should write to you, for you yourselves are, and then he makes this unique expression in the entirety of the New Testament, you were taught by God to love one another. If you're not much of a Bible reader, he just made an incredible case for it to you. You see, this tells us so much about the word of God and what it is. Now, a lot of people, I know you read the Bible and they're like, listen, I, I read it, I don't understand it. Well, God's going to hold you accountable for the part you understand. The part you don't understand, in time you will. And people say, you know, well, I, I read, I know what, you know, we leave off this verse. You know, I know where we're going to pick up next week. I read ahead, Pastor Jim. I didn't get it. And, and you know, uh, you know. I, I, why should I bother? And I'm like, well, first off, there's a couple things. You're not a Bible geek. I'm a Bible geek, man. And, you know, some Sundays we do five verses. Maybe we do five, right? And, 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 I'll, and I'll tell you, it took me 15 hours to do the sermon. That's three hours a verse. Now you're like, you stink as a Bible teacher, Pastor Jim. Three hours a verse. <laughs> I mean, come on. And so, and so but, 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 but this teaches us much about the Word of God and why we need to study it carefully, and why we need to teach it carefully. Why? Look what he says at the end. We're taught by God to love one another. When we go through the Word of God, and the Word of God goes through us, when we get into the Word of God, when we get the Word of God into us, when the Word of God is taught properly to God's people, God himself becomes the teacher. God is teaching the people how he wants them to live and more importantly, what Christ has done for us. So what's the apostle telling us? He's telling us that he's not the authority. I constantly have people running around our church telling me that I'm the authority, and I'm like, okay, thanks. I never tell anybody that. I never tell. I always figure if I have to tell anybody that, then I'm not, right? What's the point of that? He says, I'm, I'm not the authority. What's he saying? He bears the authority of Jesus Christ through the written word of God. There's no need for anybody to be the authority. The, the, the word of God is the authority. Now, there's some people who might be charged with making sure that it's you know, implemented properly, but that, there's a lot of us involved in that. Now, the idea of being taught by God, to me, is just phenomenal. I just read that, and I'm like, this is the greatest thing ever. Just think of how personal it is. That's why you can read the Word of God, and, 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 and you, you, or you hear it taught, and different people hear different things. All the time, people meet me at the door going, you know, oh, when you said this, or when you said that, I look at somebody next to me, I go, did I say that? They go, no, I didn't even say that. I didn't think I did, because they heard God speaking to them. 
and, and they were unable to differentiate what was, was going on. This is, when, when it says that God, he's the one who t- teaches you, that's like having your own personal tutor in your heart. I mean, the Holy Spirit is in your heart, willing. It takes work, guys. It takes work, trust me. But willing to tutor you in his word. And that's why I applaud you for coming out on a Wednesday night to, to, to dig deeper into the word of God. And, and Jesus taught his disciples to love one another. And now, through the Holy Spirit, through the word of God, God is teaching us and empowering us to love one another in the church. 700 years before Jesus was born, Isaiah wrote this, Isaiah 54, 13. All your children shall be taught by the Lord, and great shall be the peace of your children. John 6, 45, Jesus said this, it is written in the prophets, and then he quotes the same part of the same verse. He says, and they shall be taught by God, therefore everyone who has heard and learned from the Father comes to me. So God is actually teaching us right now. And so when we hear him, we hear the Lord teaching us, and and we, we learn from him, we will naturally come to Jesus Christ. So I think it's fair to say that how you and I respond to the word of God will directly affect and influence how we love Jesus and how we love people. Seeing how God loves us, that is so important. Seeing how God loves us will shape the way we love people, and and we might even say it will become obvious to people. That's because the Word of God not only teaches us about God's love, but it also teaches us how God loves, and when we learn about love, We also learn how to love, and he shows us it all in the person of Jesus Christ. Romans 5, 5 through 8. Now hope does not disappoint because the love of God has been poured out in our hearts by the Holy Spirit who was given to us. For when we were still without strength, in due time Christ died for the ungodly. Hallelujah. For scarcely a righteous, for a righteous man will one die, yet perhaps for a good man someone would even dare to die. But God demonstrates his own love toward us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Jesus wasn't waiting for you to clean up your act. You don't have to clean up your act. Forget that silly stuff. Come to me. Put your trust in me. And let the Holy Spirit and the word of God clean you up and start that. Now, when we did the book of Ephesians, back in Ephesians chapter 5, we learned about this kind of love as well, as the, as the Apostle Paul took us through a lot of our earthly relationships. But do you remember how the Apostle started it? He started with Ephesians 5.18. He said, be filled with the Spirit. That's the key. You can't, you can't have this kind of God love unless you and I are filled with the Spirit. Now, that's a simple thing to say, but that it's not that easy. Why? We said at the time, because we leak, right? So we're filled with the Spirit and we leak, so we have to keep getting filled and filled again. But the reason is, is our sinful nature 
And this is something I've talked to you guys about before. I'm, I'm seeing some improvement, but not enough, so i got to talk about it again. Because part of our natural, sinful nature, I know this is going to seem weird, and, and later on you're going to be like, but you're telling us we're supposed to do this. Part of our natural, sinful nature is to try harder. But that's not really what the Scripture teaches The Word of God teaches us to yield to the Word of God and the Holy Spirit. And as we do that, the Holy Spirit gives us the capacity to love. As we do that, the Holy Spirit gives us the capacity to obey the Word of God. As we do that, the Holy Spirit gives us an empowerment from Him to do the things of the Lord. Now, this is hard to hear, but it will change our lives. Our selfishness and our lack of love is generally a failure to yield ourselves to the Holy Spirit. So it's a failure to yield problem more than anything else, which will often lead us to another thought, does the Holy Spirit reside in my heart? And you know, this week, a lot of people in our church questioned that because it was a tough passage where I think that's what Jesus really wanted people to think about that and, and, and for people to think, am I saved or am I just a church person? And it's so important that we think about that stuff. You know, the Apostle Paul said, examine yourself to see if, if, if you are in the, in the faith. That's one of the reasons why I could not encourage you more to come to our Good Friday thing. It is just, it's just Jesus on the cross. That's it. And, and, and we're just examining what is going on there. Our ability to love tells us a lot about our hearts since love is reflecting the Holy Spirit's presence in us. Now, why in the world would the Apostle Paul tell this to a church because the absence of love indicates a sick church. And I'm going to even go a step further. The absence of aggressive love is an indicator of a sick church. It's not like everybody's just nice. I mean, a lot of churches are like that, but God wants the people in his churches, his people, to be going out of their way to be loving to other people. And he doesn't want us to be a sick church. While the presence of this type of love, this aggressive love, is a sign of a healthy and well-balanced church. Many people in this day and age leave a church because they say it's unloving. And I understand that. And oftentimes it is in fact true. But before you do that, Examine your own heart. Maybe it's you who's unloving. I mean, if you come late and you leave right away as soon as the service is over, how loving can the church be? Is the church really the unloving one? Really, seriously, we have to think about these things. You say, oh, no, I know God's going to have me go talk to somebody about this next week. As soon as you said that, there's somebody that popped in my head. Well, good for you. Let me know how it goes. Um, (laughs) So this this is where... 
American culture has infected the church. And there's, I mean, there's no need to blame the culture. They're out there trying to make a buck. That's what they got to do. We have to be biblical, not, we have to be biblical in the sense that we are Christians before we are Americans. And our expectation as Americans is that everywhere we go, we are to be treated like a customer. That is not love. That is not love. And, and, it's, and it's fairly easy to, to predict in a church who are going to be those kinds of people. You know, again, they come early, they come late, they leave early. They've got a billion ideas, but they never want to lift a finger. They open up their wallet and the moths and the cobwebs come out, right? Because they, just, they, they, don't, they would never, ever think of actually, you know, giving money to help other people. I'm not just talking about giving to the church. And I know it's hard to hear, but that is not loving God and his people. I mean, I was blown away the first time I went to a biblical church. I was raised in the church my whole life. Come and go, come and go, come and go, come and go. And, and, and nothing, nothing. And then I went to a church, man, and those people didn't want to leave. They were all hugging each other. And, you know, guy walks up to me and goes, hey, how you doing? Never met before. We've been talking for a couple minutes. He goes, want to go out to lunch? I go, yeah, maybe we go out to lunch. He goes, no, I mean now. <laughs> right? So we went out to lunch. Right? It turned out he was one of the leaders in the church, and he's telling me about Jesus. I didn't know anything about Jesus, really. And I, was in, I went to 12 years of religious school. I didn't know anything about him. He's telling me all this stuff. I'm like, wow, really? You're kidding. I didn't know that. I didn't know any of that. I thought I knew everything. I'm like, hey, I graduated. I mean, they gave me a degree, but, but, but you know, a high school diploma. But, but see, when we're like, when, when we're not, you know, loving God and his people, we're not worshiping him with our lives. It's not just come sing the song and go to church. A lot of people think, oh, well, it's just good enough if I go to church. Well, that's fine until you read the Bible and you see this. this is not what God says at all. It's not what God says at all. Love for one another in the church, and we're going to see in a minute outside the church, is deeply rooted in our relationship with God. Loving one another in the church, warts and all, as difficult as all of us can be at some times, including me. I'm not saying that. I'm, I'm, not, I'm probably the worst. That's probably why God made me the pastor. So I study the Bible all week. And, and so, but what does it do? When, when love for one another reflects the sanctifying work of God in our hearts. And the more impossible people that you love, guess what? The more the sanctifying work of God is taking place in your heart. Verse 10, he says, And indeed you do what love, so toward all the brethren who are in Macedonia, so they were, they were loving one another and reaching out to others in love, but we urge you, brethren, that you increase more and more. I, this, I know this is my nature. I love this about the Christian life. Like you never arrive. It's continual, constant improvement. You're always trying to be to, to, to be better at it, to have, and you've got God's help in it. 
You keep going. We are perpetual students. We're constantly pressing into Christ to be more like him. See, what he's saying here is we don't, we don't just love our church. We have to love our church. That's something we have to do. But we love Christ's church. We love, we love the church at large. And that's very important in our day. Why? Because a lot of churches right now are fighting to survive. 7% of churches right now are growing. We're, we're in that 7% by the grace of God. But only 7% are growing. While others that are getting lots of people from other places are going to these struggling churches trying to take their buildings from them for free. Now, there's a lot of ins and outs of that, but some have staff and consultants to try and get other church buildings for free. Again, I get it. I've got friends who've gotten buildings that way. I'm not saying that I'm against that, but I am saying that sometimes a lot of people get hurt in the process because they feel like their church was taken out from under them. They feel like their church was, was stolen from them. And how will some answer this? I just sit there and I go, I'll talk to these guys. I'll be like, you don't really say that, do you? Like, all right, if you're, if you're like bearing your, your, your sinful heart to me as another pastor, I get it. But this is what some will say. Well, God is at work with us and not with them. Really? I mean, how do you know that? You, you, know, you, know, what, you know what the Church of Christ was at the end? The cross? It was the Church of Christ. <laughs> Just about everybody had abandoned him. The Apostle Paul, he's writing 2 Timothy. He's in jail. He's alone, man. He's like, I ain't got anybody, man. Help. That is just, I don't know, man. That, to me, is just so arrogant. Now, if you think, well, do you have anything to back that up? I could recommend a book to you that is, um, it's amazing and scary. It's called The Great Evangelical Recession, Six Factors That Will Crash the American Church and How to Prepare. The Great evangelical recession. You got to be a real geek to read books like this. I'm just telling you. So it's written by this guy who's an award-winning journalist, and then he became a pastor, John Dickerson, a really bright young man. And um, he had the hip, cool church in town in, in Arizona that everybody was transferring to. They were leaving churches and, and going to his church. And, and I, I don't know whether somebody challenged him or what. In fact, if you email me for a bunch of pastors, I wrote a summary of the book, and I have a short version and a longer version, and, and so you could email me, and I would be happy to share that with you, and that, that will save you a lot of time having to read the whole book. Um, but, I mean, it's, a, it's, good, it's a good book, but, but he, he sort of looked at how people transferring from a few churches or a lot of churches into just a few was actually long-term how it's going to hurt the church. And um, sadly, he knew that what it was leaving behind was hurt people, you know, who lose their church. This is my language, not his. And maybe next year they, they, they go there and their church is then a condo complex or, or it's an office building or it's... Um, 
it becomes a church that they just don't fit into anymore. And so what they do is they just are like, you know what, I'm just not going to go anymore. And it's sad. But, but the Thessalonian church, they loved other Bible-teaching churches in the area, and so should we. And I know it's getting harder and harder to find Bible-teaching churches. Not churches that use the Bible, but actually churches that you know, go line by line through it. And those that teach the Bible, we should encourage them to do that. So they were loving brothers and sisters outside the walls of their own church. And I'll just say this on behalf of this church. That is, that is one of the primary goals of our radio station, is to love the body of Christ at large in eastern Morris County by broadcasting the word of God to them. That is... That is one of the main reasons, if not the main reasons, behind uh, Change by Love Radio, that we want to take what you know God is doing here, and and we have it playing in, in um, you know various cities throughout the throughout the country. If you're listening on the radio in your car right now, God bless you. It's probably winter by now, but <laughs> bundle up. <laughs> but 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 that that's what it's about it's about bringing blessing to other christians and to people who are not yet christians um, and so that includes you know loving loving people in church when they offend you or or loving people who who don't necessarily like your idea why because love is commanded L- love is not love is not optional love brings unity into a church, and unity brings blessing, and, and love must be continually pursued because it stagnates very quickly and very easily and can have a facade of love but not be really deep down love. And, and then when we learn to love in the church, you know what he wants us to do? He wants us to export it outside the church. You know, we often say the old expression, we're the church gathered and then we become the church scattered. And you know where he even wants you to take it to? He wants you to take it to where you work. Are you so sure about that? Yeah, read verse 11. That you also aspire to lead a quiet life, to mind your own business, and to work with your own hands as we commanded you, that you may walk properly towards those who are outside and that you lack nothing. So we've gone from purity before God to loving the brethren, loving one another in the church and other Christians outside the church. And now he takes us to life among unbelieving people. You know, for too many people, way too many people, their, their Christianity is a Sunday morning thing one to two times a month. That was never the intention of God. Never, never, never that that's all our Christian life would consist of. Our faith is not to be compartmentalized, not at all. Instead, instead of saying, and in my, a lot of people say, well, faith is an important part of my life. Let's just, let's, just, let's just get that saying and let's rearrange or delete some words. Just say, my faith is my life. It is my life. Seven days a week. I don't, I don't, I don't, I'm not always perfect at it, but it's, it's what I aim to do. Colossians 3, 4. 
when Christ who is our life appears. By far, most versions said, when Christ who is your life appears, then you will also appear with him in glory. You can, when he is your life, you can be confident that you will appear with him in glory. So these Thessalonians loved one another in the church, but they also needed to love those outside the church, including those they work with, as we'll see. And I know this, that a lot of the people that you work with make fun of your faith. I know that. And, and Jesus is on the cross, and they're mocking him. And what does he say? Father, forgive them, for they don't know what they're doing. Now you say, well, I'm not Jesus. Well, let me just tell you something. If you are a Christian, you are a child of God, you are a son or a daughter of the king, they are making fun of the king's kids. Father, forgive them, for they don't know what they're doing. They don't know what they're doing. But sometimes we get so arrogant in our own pride, we forget that most of us were once the mockers of Jesus. Most of us were once the mockers of the people who have a serious Christian faith. <laughs> now look at you. You go to Bible studies on Wednesday nights. Now who's laughing, right? <laughs> that's, that's the way it is. It's okay. How we work says a lot about our faith. Are we diligent? Are we dependable? Or are we one of those flaky Christians? Do the people on our job know that we're there to seriously to do a good job, but do they also know that we care about them? Are we willing to help other people with their job, or is it just about me and, and my career and my promotion and, and, and what I do? A guy came up to me years ago. He doesn't go here anymore. You'll know why after you know what I said to him. He came up to here, up front here, and he said, uh, Pastor Jim, I, I'm afraid that I'm a hypocrite at work. I said, why would you say that? He goes, well, when I'm at work, I'm foul-mouthed. I tell dirty jokes. I go out with the guys after work. I get drunk. I smoke weed, and I'm way worse than I was even at work. I said, oh, oh, don't worry about it. You're not a hypocrite at work. He said, I'm not. He was so happy. I said, you're a hypocrite here. <laughs> Because what you are the rest of the week is what you are. What you are Sunday morning is trying to be like something that you're not. And you wonder why it doesn't go here anymore. Here's one for your desk at work. Colossians 3, 23 and 24. You're a student at your desk for your refrigerator. If you're working at home. And whatever you do, do it heartily as to the Lord and not to men. We might put it this way. Do it with all of your heart. Whatever you do, do it enthusiastically as if you are doing it for the Lord himself. Verse 24, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the reward of the inheritance for you serve the Lord Christ. That's the way to work. That's the way not only for excellence, but that is the way to enjoy it and that is the way to experience Christ in what may seem to you a mundane thing. Now, why would he say this to the Thessalonians? Well, there's a theory that many Bible scholars hold. Uh, when we get to 2 Thessalonians, it will appear more obvious 
that the Apostle Paul, two weeks we'll come to this, he starts it, but he'll talk more about it in 2 Thessalonians. He's been talking about the Lord's return, but some of them think that it's going to happen at any moment. That is the doctrine of the imminent return of Jesus Christ or the doctrine of eminency. And so what they did was, it appears to them, we don't know for sure, but a lot of scholars think that they, um, remember we have to sort of deduce what's going on by what's being said, that a lot of them quit their jobs and became idle. How come you don't work? Ah, Jesus is coming back. How come you dropped out of school? What's the point? Jesus is coming back. Hey, how come you're not really doing this or doing that? Well, hey, Jesus is coming back, man. Come on. Don't you read the tea leaves, man? I mean, <laughs> he's, he's coming back. Now, here's an important thing to learn about end times eschatology. What we learn from history is that we don't learn from history. I mean, there's been people playing pin the tail on the Antichrist and date naming for centuries. And guess what? We're still here. So we'll talk about that stuff when the time comes. But to say that you are a follower of Jesus Christ, for me to say that I'm a follower of Jesus Christ and evade our responsibilities, hiding behind the fact that we think Jesus is coming any minute is a complete distortion of the word of God. Complete. I have, no, I have no bones about saying that because it's been going on for 2,000 years. Not to mention their idleness is such a poor testimony to people, and if they weren't working, it made them dependent on people for food and money. Their idle and irresponsible in their idle and irresponsible laziness. Laziness and Christian should never be in the same sentence. Never. Never. <laughs> One person in this church about 12 years ago implied that I might be lazy. My wife, I guess we married 18 years at the time, she, I couldn't control her. She was laughing so hard. She's like, your name and lazy in the same sentence? You couldn't even do that with a computer. It wouldn't allow you to do it. It should never be in the same sentence. And, and in their idle and irresponsible laziness, um, you know, it, it says here, it seems to imply here that some of them became busybodies, stirring up trouble, draining those around them. Now, some of you might say, how does this connect to love? Ah, I'm so glad you asked. Personal irresponsibility is most unloving. We need to hear that again. Personal irresponsibility is most unloving. Few things make church life more difficult than people who are unwilling, and family life too, unwilling, and work life too, that are unwilling to be responsible and help share the workload. So again, let's go slowly and see the practical implications for us. Verse 11, that you also aspire. Another version says that you make it your ambition. And he said, before we weren't supposed to try harder. I said, we're supposed to yield ourselves to the Holy Spirit. So making something our ambition by yielding to the Holy Spirit, we are to strive for, we are to desire, and he gives us three things. One, to lead a quiet life, to lead a quiet life. Two, to mind your own business. 
and three, to work with your own hands as we commanded you. Another, another version says instructed you or we told you, but I like the word commanded because whose authority was it? It's God's authority. You are to work with your hands as God commanded. So the first thing is to lead a quiet life. Now, it's hard to know exactly what this means. We weren't there 2,000 years ago, well, not quite 2,000 years ago when this was written. And, and, but it certainly, I don't think, certainly we can say it doesn't mean what most Americans would think that it means. Um, it could mean be responsible for yourself. Stop expecting everybody else to always help you. Even, even God is that way. We, we ask God to constantly do things for ourselves that we can't do, but we don't want to ask God to do things that we can do ourselves. We might ask him to be with us, to help us, but there's just certain things we have to do ourselves. You know, you know if, if, if you look out the window and, and your neighbor has got that carefully coiffed lawn, you know, beautiful, you know, nothing, not, not a stick on it, nothing, not a leaf, nothing out of place, and your lawn is three foot high, don't be like, oh, Lord, hallelujah, cut my lawn, <laughs> right? What do you want, to send fire down? <laughs> right? Get out, get the lawnmower out, cut your lawn, right? Pay somebody to do it, whatever, whatever. Call one of the pastors in the church, just not me. Right? So, and, and so it could be also to avoid um, having a turbulent, hostile, angry, constantly filled with conflict life that so many people lead. You know people who lead lives like that all the time? It's like, how, gosh, how do you do that? Now, we think of quiet as the absence of words, but it appears here to be more a state of being, a quiet confidence in the work of the Lord. Now, it's interesting, he says, you know, make it your ambition to lead a quiet life. In our way of thinking, those two words, ambition and quiet, are not usually found in the same sentence, are they? But in the word of God, they are. How? We are to work hard with a quiet, not arrogant, confidence in the Lord, not a confidence in ourselves, not always seeking or demanding the limelight. Not to mention, when we're out in the workplace, you cannot let every little thing bother you. You can't be constantly in the church and in, in, in life, constantly threatening to quit. That is not a confidence in the sovereignty of God. We, we serve the Lord no matter what life throws at us. We'll talk about that we can leave jobs in a, in a bit. But it's important to realize that the gospel becomes believable to unbelieving people when they see changed lives. It becomes believable to people when they see people who are different everywhere they go. Everywhere they go. They're not, they're not a different person in each place where they go. 
Next, he says, mind your own business. Mind your own business. Remember when I was a kid, when I, I always wanted to know what was going on with my brother and sister. And my mother used to go, M-Y-O-B, <laughs> mind your own business. So what, would he, what could he mean here? I think one thing he's saying here is be so busy with the things of God that you have no time to be a busybody. Sadly, this is sad. And this is stuff we got to get over this hump with our friends and our neighbors and our family members. Sadly, many people think that church, and they're not entirely off in a lot of places, they think that church is a bunch of self-righteous people poking their nose into other people's business where they don't belong. Here's the ironic thing about that. People like that almost never have their own lives together. They're a hot mess, but yet they're running around trying to tell everybody else how to live their lives. They're like the people who Jesus said. They got the big planks in their own eyes, and they're trying to pick a little speck out of somebody else's eyes. So they're walking around with a telephone pole out of their eye of problems, and they're like, oh, oh, you didn't, you didn't pick that up. Let me, get the, oh, 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 right? Like, what is that? Mind your own business. Number three, to work with your own hands. Now, this is very interesting. In Greek culture, manual labor was looked down upon. Not in heaven's culture. Lord says, work with your hands. Work gives people dignity and purpose. It makes our faith practical and real, not just something in our heads. Quite simply, he's saying to those of us who are able to work, who, who have, a, have a job that we go to, take your faith on Sunday to work with you on Monday. You know, one of the things, and, and I know you guys cheat because you come on Wednesday night, but, but one of the, you're not cheating. One of the things I always say to the Lord is, Lord, would you please give me a sermon on Sunday that they remember by thir on Thursday? And by the time Friday comes around, they're starting to get just a little antsy like I am, like they can't wait for Sunday to come. They can't wait to be filled with the, with the word of the Lord. Now, you say, well, what if you hate your job? A lot of these guys were slaves. A lot of the early church were slaves. Now, you say, but I hate my job. We're blessed to be able to change lives, uh, change jobs. But, but, but it wasn't easy for them. And I, I've had to say this to many people in our congregation who hate their job. Listen. It is an honorable thing to get up every morning and go to a job that you hate to put food on your table and to be able to give money to help other people. There is no shame in that. There is absolutely no shame. In fact, when I hear somebody's doing that, they have my full admiration. Because, Lottie, it's easy to go to a job you love. It's not easy to go to a job that you hate but you're doing it because you want to honor the Lord. Well, why is this important? Verse 12, that you may walk properly towards those who are outside, it means outside the faith, and that you may lack nothing. The English Standard Version translates it like this, 
so that you may walk properly before outsiders and be dependent on no one. The NIV says, uh, so your daily life may win the respect of outsiders and so you will not be dependent on anybody. So here we get two important results of living out verse 11. First, you will represent Jesus Christ well to unbelieving people. If, if in your life, you're, you're trying to be leading a quiet life, you're responsible for yourself and for your own work. If you're minding your own business, you're not always figuring out what's the latest company gossip. You're going to represent the Lord well. If you work with your hands, if you accomplish what it is that you are employed to do, you will represent Jesus Christ well to unbelieving people. Second thing is, he says, you won't lack. Now, the obvious implication is you won't lack money. You, you work a job, you get money, and hopefully you have enough. And, and, and if you're working a job and, and you don't have enough and you, you've, you've cut your budget down to the bare bones, that's part of what you know, we pay taxes for, for the government, and they, they, they help us. And, and that's part of the reason why people give money uh, to a church. But I also think it means something else, too. I think he also says if, if, if you walk properly, walk is the way we live, if you, if you work the right way, if you do a good job, you won't lack a credible witness to unbelieving people you work with. We've said this many times before. The people that you work with do not care about your faith. They care about the way you do your job. And they care that you're not going, oh, 5 p.m., got to go to Bible study, praise the Lord, and they're still, you're sitting here, and they're still at, job, at the job doing your work. That, 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 that's not going to have a credible witness or cred credible testimony, credible, you know, being able to tell people about the Lord. So God uses both the preaching of the Word of God and the credible witness of the lives of His people to add to his church the people that are being saved. I had a guy just this Sunday. He, he said, I wanted to come check out your church. He's, church, he's a Christian. He goes, but there's a guy in my, that I work with that became a Christian here, and he has changed so much. He just wanted to see what this place was about. And, and that's so very important. In other words, our message and the, and the way we live must be connected to be credible, including our own personal responsibility. It should be all of our goals if we're physically and mentally able to support ourselves and not to be lazy. Laziness preaches the gospel very poorly. Very, very poorly. You said... Um, but I thought we we're supposed to live for the Lord's opinion. Yes, but the world's opinion will be a barrier to their hearing us. So is the church supposed to help one another? Yes. Are we supposed to help one another become lazy, idle, and busybodies? No. No, we're not supposed to do that. We work to support ourselves and help people in need so we're not the people in need. And again, there's always going to be exceptions of that. Again, side note, big difference 
be between someone who can't find work and someone who won't work. Huge difference, huge difference. In two weeks, we'll begin the discussion on the Lord's return, Lord willing, but it's important to see in what we've seen so far in chapter four that pleasing God is to be a goal of our lives before that day comes. We are to love Jesus. We are to fill our hearts with the word of God and we are to let that love for Jesus empower us to sexual purity and to love others. We are to work hard for the Lord and then we will be free of the tyranny of always working for the approval of others. And here's the unusual thing that I have found, and some of you who don't know me, I've, I've owned a company for 35 years. I didn't go to, into the ministry till later in life. And, and I've noticed this in, in watching people who are Christians in the workplace. When they work for the Lord and not the tyranny of the approval of others, they often get the promotion that everybody else wanted. <laughs> because they're not so stressed out about looking good. They're focused on doing a good job because their work's not sloppy and it's not lazy. It's done to the glory of God. So love and a good work ethic will open a lot of doors for you to love and serve others with the good news of Jesus Christ. When Jesus was just a boy, he, he went back to Nazareth and we're told that he obeyed his mother and father when he was 12. And then we're given this sort of this, this sentence that we don't know how long it, it really encapsulates. It could be really from the age of 12 to 30 till he pops back on the scene. And it says this, Luke 2, uh, 2.52, and Jesus increased in wisdom and stature and in favor with God and men. What was he? He was a carpenter. He, were, he was a carpenter. He was leading a quiet life. He was making a living. He wasn't a busy body. He worked with his hands. John 17, 4, the night before the crucifixion, he says this to, the, to his father. He, he's praying. He says, I have glorified you on the earth. I have finished the work which you have given me to do. What was that work? Well, that was many things. It was living a life that was pleasing to God. It was living a life that was perfectly pure. Now, son, of, that's done for us, right? That's done. But, but when we put our trust in Christ, he takes the sin of our impure life and he gives us the righteousness. Remember, we're positionally righteous. He gives us the righteousness of his pure life. He was loving. He was trusting he worked hard. All that is included in the ultimate work, which was his dying on the cross in our place for our sins. So anyone, anyone, we've been learning this on Sundays. He's like, go get the riffraff and tell them the good news. Go get the most notorious sinners and tell them the good news. Anyone who would turn to God 
and put their trust in Jesus. Acknowledge, I've been doing my own thing. This stuff we've been talking about tonight, man, I, it's, it's like it was all for me. I'm, I, I, got a, I got an F in almost every department. He, he, if you put your trust in him, you will have the full forgiveness of sins and eternal life and the power of the Holy Spirit to begin to live a new life as a new creation in Jesus Christ. Well, let's stand and pray.